All right, now let's um, have a word of prayer and we'll uh, get rolling. Uh, we have some very, a very important uh, sequence to study today and we believe the Lord is going to use it in a special way. We'd like to complete it uh, since we have uh, two more uh, classes and two more lessons uh, on this, uh, this matter of the spirit of a marriage. So uh, let's bow in prayer and we'll get right at the business at hand. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, your love, your mercy to us. And we would just pray even now that you would give us real liberty in sharing your word. We're so very, very thankful for the opportunity we have to reflect upon your glory. And even in these days as we have seen uh, the awesome power that is inherent in a mountain, we can't help but, but, but feel that it's just a pittance compared to the tremendous power that you have. The power that you said that was the greatest was that power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead to secure our salvation. And so, Lord, we just thank you for that. But we thank you, too, that you give power to us for living. We pray that that power of God that is resident within us will be utilized by us to live as we ought to live in this day of so much desperate need. We just praise you for it in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right, now, we're talking about those things that cause the spirit of a husband to react to a wife. Things that can uh, be uh, really uh, harmful in, uh, in regard to the, the spirit of a marriage. And so, therefore... Uh, we we just finished talking about the uh, the fact that sometimes a wife will will fail to build respect in the lives of the children for the father because of her own rebellious heart. We want to move to another area today, and that is number six, if you're counting, and it is the lack of a grateful spirit. The lack of a grateful spirit. There's a tremendous danger that a wife will come in her marriage, in her experience with her husband, to where she expects certain things. Uh, for instance, uh, a wife will expect that her husband ought to remember their anniversary. Uh, and so then a husband uh, does remember it. And what happens is, then that is just par for the course. It's, there's nothing special about it. It loses its special nature because, after all, it's his responsibility to remember that anniversary. Uh, perhaps a birthday. Uh, and once again, uh, everybody likes to be remembered. And so the wife uh, comes up to the time of the birthday and, and she rather expects that uh, that the the husband will will remember her birthday, and uh, the amazing thing takes place because you see, if uh, if the, uh, the if your husband uh, were to uh, let's say remember his secretary's birthday, she would really be surprised, and and that would be something that would be so special to her that he would remember her birthday and uh, because she didn't expect 
that he would remember the birthday because it wasn't something that he was he had a responsibility to do therefore she projects a tremendously grateful spirit if the if the uh, the neighbor uh, across the street uh, calls your husband on the phone and says you know my husband's out of town this week and I've got a drippy faucet that's just bothering me uh, could you come over and, and, and fix it for me and maybe he is a handy person so he goes over and he fixes the faucet what kind of a response does he get oh I'll never forget you for this and, and, and just a tremendously grateful attitude but when you say to your husband I've got a drippy faucet and he fixes it what can he expect from you it's about time see what I mean and, and so there's a whole, it's a syndrome that comes that because the wife has set expectations before the husband. A man told me one time, he said, I try to be thoughtful. He said, I, I think I, I've, I've done the best I could. But all I can expect from my wife after I've done something for her that, that, that really I thought would mean a lot to her was just an ungrateful spirit. Just an attitude that, why didn't you do this sooner? It's about time. Or an attitude that uh, uh, you, you ought to do that. After all, you're my husband. And those are things that are expected of a husband. What happens is that when a wife expects extras, expects those little niceties that a man may do for her, expects that uh, he ought to give her flowers uh, on uh, certain occasions and this sort of thing then a man loses his motivation and he will tend to look for people who will be pleasantly surprised that where he can express uh, his uh, affection if a wife on the other hand can come to the place in her experience where she is really grateful and really pleasantly surprised by the things that he does then a man's motivation is increased and I find and I I just testify to this I find a greater delight really in surprising my wife with a bouquet of flowers um, when there's no occasion than I do to surprise her quote surprise her uh, with that on some occasion some other occasion uh, where there is a real reason for it. You know, if I give my wife uh, a beautiful plant at Easter, uh, that's no big deal because that's something that people do at Easter, you see? But if I give her a beautiful plant for no reason at all, just because I love her, then, of course, she's really surprised. She didn't expect it. I like to surprise my wife with those things. Now, of course, I, I realize that I maybe am on my toes on some of those things a little more than others because I study this concept constantly and uh, for the sake of counseling and all of the rest, and I try to practice what I preach. And, uh, and, and maybe some of you would really like it if your husband would uh, bring you some flowers once in a while. Believe me, when I'm talking to the men, I encourage them to do that uh, because I... And I encourage them to, to, to not necessarily have to have a reason for it, uh, but just surprise the wife because that helps a lot in developing a grateful spirit as far as a wife is concerned. But a man's motivation is increased 
when he is when he is faced with real his generosity has increased when he is faced with real gratefulness now again if I were talking to husbands I would tell them a number of things one thing is that I would try to teach men and have done some of this with men from time to time I would teach them my best I know how to generate a spirit of positive praise in the home there needs to be an attitude of praise, an atmosphere, if you please, of praise that is generated uh, in the home. And of course it comes by the man's leadership, first and foremost. He should be a grateful man. If he's going to motivate the rest of the family to be grateful as well. He should be grateful to God. He should learn to give thanks in everything. Uh, he should learn what it is to set times aside for uh, real praise to the Lord and then he too should express gratefulness to his wife for things that she does, express gratefulness uh, to the people that work for him, express gratefulness to the children and uh, just generate a, a spirit of gratefulness and a spirit of praise. There are three very basic ingredients for a happy home. Uh, there are other things obviously but the, most of them relate one way or another to this but the first thing is a spirit of prayer. A spirit of prayer. A spirit of prayer really is a two-way street. It involves more than just simply prayer. Prayer is not complete without, uh, without Bible study and connection with it. And so therefore, uh, there, there first of all is uh, God speaking through His Word. And secondly, there is you speaking to God. So you have you have the the two-way street in regard to prayer, and uh, we, we we cannot pray properly. We pray amiss that we may consume it on our lust, our, our own lust, unless of course we we let God speak to us first of all through His Word. It's a very necessary ingredient in a happy home to have this this whole concept of communicating the truth of God's Word and letting that inspire prayer. And then, secondly, there is praise. Praise is another vital element. And that, of course, is the thing that we're particularly focusing on here. And it should be prayer to God, first of all, and then prayer, or praise, excuse me, to God, and then praise to others. We should be grateful to God for all that He has done, for the good gifts that He's given, and learn in everything to give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And so the, the focus of praise. And then I think the other one is play. Taking in the whole area of recreation. And there should be Christ-centered good times in the home and the family. And those are three very vital elements in the matter of, of the, uh, the home and the family. And it's this one especially that, that creates a spirit of gratefulness. And if a wife will have a grateful spirit, and her husband uh, will, then her husband will will tend to be more thoughtful because he, he he gets excited and he gets motivated by the gratefulness of his wife. So the major time that we have today, we want to talk about how to develop a grateful spirit. There are some theological implications that are involved. Things that you should have an understanding of things that you should know in order to to put yourself in the framework of having a grateful spirit 
Now, I'm not talking merely about uh, some kind of, a, of an exercise that you can do. Uh, you know, uh, uh, mark down on a piece of paper all the things you're grateful for. All of those kind of exercises can be good. But I want to give you today a biblical basis for a grateful spirit. There are some things in Scripture that are very pointed in this regard. So therefore, we want, to, we want to focus upon those things, and there are probably a lot others that we'd miss, but these are the things that we want to particularly point out today. We have to realize, first of all, just from the very pragmatic standpoint, that men are softened and moved by a grateful spirit. Now, a good illustration of this is over in the book of Ruth, chapter 2. The book of Ruth, chapter 2. And I want you to look at that, if you will. A little book tucked in between Judges and 1 Samuel. The book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was a foreigner, came with her mother-in-law back to the house of bread and uh, back to the, the city of Bethlehem, Judah. Um, the, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, a parallel that is uh, brought out in terms of, of spiritual truth. Um, the the uh, picture was that the that Bethlehem, which meant the house of bread and praise, was the place that was deserted. Um, it was deserted by uh, Naomi's husband and family, uh, by uh, Elam Elamelech, um, and uh, the. The idea of, of them leaving that place to go down into the city of Moab is really quite a type because Bethlehem Judah was the house of bread and praise and uh, Moab was the place that God calls his garbage can. It, it's like a person leaving luxury and going to live in a dump. And uh, that's exactly what was done. Just because God was putting it through the test, they ran away. And they suffered a great deal uh, out of the will of God. But after her husband died, Naomi, you remember, went back. And Ruth went with her. And uh, God had, had blessed abundantly. And there was a near kinsman by the name of Boaz, whose name means strength. And uh, Boaz... Uh, had a field, and the Old Testament law required that that uh, uh, people that were destitute, particularly widows and so on, had the privilege of gleaning, and they were allowed to go into the fields, and the reapers were not allowed to pick up the grain that was left after they'd gone through the initial time. They weren't able; they weren't uh, supposed to cut into the corners. Uh, they were to uh, leave some of this grain for the poor. And this was God's welfare program. And uh, it'd be a good pattern for welfare programs today because they had to work for what they got. But they got, they were able to get it. 
And uh, so Ruth, being, in, being poor and destitute, went into the field of Boaz and she uh, began to pick up the grain. Well, now the first thing was that Boaz saw that she was beautiful. And that, of course, helps a lot. But that wasn't the thing that really got Boaz going. Boaz was attracted to her because of her, her physical sight. But when he, he, he saw her and uh, he told her, he says, don't go glean in anybody else's field. He says, you let your eyes be on my field. And uh, I've charged the young men not to touch you. Uh, nobody is supposed to bother you. And when you're thirsty, you go ahead and drink out of my own well, which was something that was not uh, uh, required or not allowed sometimes. And so he gave her this, this special thing. Well, what was her response? You see, she was, she was overwhelmed and pleasantly surprised by what, uh, what Boaz had already done. And it says in verse 10, She fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a foreigner? Why in the world would you even bother with someone like me? You see how grateful she is. She demonstrated a grateful spirit. What happened as a result of that grateful spirit? Now, as a result of her beauty, he was willing to protect her and willing to let her drink from his well. But when she said, Why have you done this? Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully no, uh, shown to me all that thou hast done for thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of the nativity, and are come unto a people whom thou knewest not here, heretofore. He was also moved by her own generosity. So he said, The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. But then, she, after she again said, Let me be one of your handmaidens, then Boaz and uh, it says in verse 15, when she got up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls on purpose. A little book called Handfuls on Purpose. Have you ever seen it? A little devotional book. What it is is the uh, little gleanings from Scripture. Handfuls on purpose. And that's where it comes from, right here. Let fall also some of the handfuls on purpose for her. In other words, as you're reaping the grain, take a handful, drop it, so that she can pick it up, make it easier for her, that she may glean them and rebuke her not. So she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about uh, an ephah of barley, about three and a half peck of barley. She was able to gather more than the average person because he, sensing a grateful spirit, gave her the extra. Now, you know, it's a beautiful love story because God eventually arranged for Boaz to be the kinsman redeemer and be able to uh, take Ruth as his own wife. But nevertheless, at this point, her grateful spirit was very, very obvious. And men are softened by a woman's grateful spirit. And they, they, they like and enjoy doing things for people when they're truly grateful. But you say, but I did something, uh, I demonstrated real gratefulness to my husband the other day, and he didn't do, it didn't do a thing for him. You've got to realize that men's hearts can become hardened because of attitudes that have been allowed to, to lie dormant for many, many months, many, many years. 
You can't expect that one act of being grateful is going to suddenly change your husband into a softy. Because he, he's, he's developed his own attitudes and they become set. What he needs is a continual exposure to the, shall we say, the heat, the softening heat of a grateful, truly grateful spirit. Now, the second thing that you need to realize is that God often works through the inconsideration of others. Now, you know, we, we tend to react very, very quickly instead of realizing that God has a higher purpose and that the mind of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he turns it whithersoever he will, even as he does the rivers of water. The passage of scripture I put down is Genesis 40, verse 23. I won't turn you to it because of time, but let me just quote it for you. It says, and the butler forgot Joseph. The butler forgot Joseph. How ungrateful that man was. Here Joseph had, had uh, given the answer to his dream and the butler just plain forgot all about his friend that had helped him so much there in prison. He forgot him. He got so excited about his own things, so selfish, that he just plain forgot. Now listen, do you understand what we're saying here? God was not yet ready to release Joseph from prison. God had a purpose. The reason that the butler forgot was to teach Joseph patience and at the same time keep him on ice until God was ready to use him. We tend to look at the ungrateful spirit, the inconsiderate attitude, of a butler who couldn't even keep a small favor that was being asked of him after Joseph had done so much for him. All he said, all Joseph said was, just when you get before Pharaoh, remember, remember me. I'm here. I'm innocent. I'm not guilty of the charges. I'm here in prison. If you could just speak a kind word. And what did he do? He forgot. He's just as bad, you know, as a husband that forgets an anniversary just plain forgets it. Now you see the problem is that when your husband forgets your anniversary you tend to think of what a lout he is. And he is. He shouldn't forget something like that. It's, it, it's, it's very, very important and uh, I, I think men uh, should, should have a, a, a little sense knocked into them in regard to an important date like that. Uh, so far, so good. I've gone 21 years without forgetting an anniversary yet. But um, believe me, it's, uh, you know, there have been some close calls where I've gotten busy and got thinking about other things. And, uh, and, and uh, all of a sudden I realize, oh no, tomorrow's our anniversary. You know, it's very easy to do. And uh, yet realize that, that anniversaries, birthdays, these special dates, uh, remembering, uh, remembering uh, things like that is sort of a gift that a woman has because she remembers little details. And a man, you know, it's just sort of general and overall and he doesn't think a lot of times of how important that is to the wife. I did, I pulled a sneaky one time. 
I sent my wife a dozen roses, and I said on the note, I said, I said, I just wanted to send a little remembrance on this special day. And she couldn't figure out what the special day was. You know, was it the day we got engaged? Well, you know, she's got all of these down, and she went through her whole computer, you know, trying to think it, think it through, and uh, and she couldn't, and it drove her, just drove her up a wall, because she thought she'd forgotten some special day. And when she asked me what it was, I just said, it's just a day that I was especially thinking of you. That makes it special. <laughs> Whoa, she about killed me. Anyway, <laughs> but, you know, but one of the reasons I did it, you know, you got to always do something like that out of a little bit of spite. You know, she's so good. She never forgets any of these things, you know. And so it, it was kind of fun to tease her a little bit. But you see, this man forgot. And you see, what happens is that when your husband forgets an anniversary or forgets to do something you asked him to, whether it's getting a loaf of bread at the store on his way home from work or anything like that, he just forgets something. Right away, you tend to focus upon his failure instead of realizing that we have a God who is in control of those things who could have easily reminded him. And there is a reason why God didn't do that. Maybe to teach you to be more grateful. Maybe to teach you to be more patient. There may be all kinds of reasons. But God is more interested in developing your character than he is in having your husband remember your anniversary. You see? God is far more interested in developing a godly, Christ-like character in you than he is in some of these things that you deem important. I'll tell you, God will more than make up for it when he has built into your life the character of Jesus Christ. So keep in mind that God works through the inconsideration of others. Your husband may be the most inconsiderate lout in the world, but I'll tell you this, God can work through him to develop character in you that is Christ-like. Some of the most godly women that I've ever known in my life have had husbands that were far worse than anything you could imagine. Now I realize that the ideal home situation is a considerate husband, a grateful wife, happy children, all of those things. But you know, there's a tendency sometimes when we everything is good and everything is right, to sort of cruise and sort of just uh, let things slide rather than really developing the character that God wants to be in our life. So what he does, he sends you trial. And he'll send it one way or another. It may be through an ungrateful husband or an ungrateful wife. It may be through an inconsiderate husband. But nevertheless, he's going to teach you the lessons that he wants you to learn. When will we ever learn that God is putting together the circumstances of life to bring us to glory and to develop the character of Christ in us? That's the second thing. Third thing is this. The yielded Christian must never retaliate. 
Look with me over at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Now there are several other passages. 1 Peter 3 is one, and, uh, there's several, and 1 Peter 2 as well, uh, that we could turn to. And I just want to focus for a moment upon Romans 12, where it says in verse 17, Recompense, having presented your body a living sacrifice to God, recompense to no man. To no individual, to no person. Evil for evil. Now what do you do? When your husband fails you by being inconsiderate, forgetting an anniversary, forgetting a birthday, forgetting to do something you've asked him to do, what do you do? You retaliate. You give him the cold shoulder. You you kind of uh, uh, act hurt and 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 upset with him and and uh, you you complain about the fact that you do so many things for him and here he forgets something like this you know and you begin to berate him with words and and uh, all of this kind of thing there are all kinds of things all kinds of tactics women use to get back at their husbands whoever gave you the idea you have to get back at him first place you have to forgive him but also, you never recompense to, uh, evil for evil. You provide things honest in the sight of all men. Do your part. Don't worry about him. God will take care of him. But provide things honest in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as lieth within you, live peaceably with all men. You do your responsibility. What's your responsibility? Forgive, to love, to continue to be considerate, to be grateful even when he has been inconsiderate. Be grateful for the things that he does do. And realize that husbands a lot of times, you know, just reason differently than wives. They just need to understand and realize that there is a, there is a very real responsibility that, that we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the other person. Some men feel that just the fact that they support their wife the fact that they provide shelter over her head and provide food on the table and provide clothes for her back, that that is an expression of love. And they get upset because their wife takes those things for granted and says, you never show me any love. And the man says to his mind, what do I have to do to show love? I thought I was showing love by doing all of these things. You see what I mean? Put yourself in his shoes. And realize that a man who works hard, uh, one woman one night just bawled her husband out for working late and uh, just berated him for it. And the poor broken man came and, and just simply poured out his heart. He said, I was working late because she had been saying that she didn't have enough money for this and didn't have enough money for that. And I put in some overtime deliberately so I could give her the things that she said she wanted. And she doesn't even understand. She doesn't appreciate it. See? i never forget, you know, my, my parents, when I was just a little tyke living in Everett, Washington, never forget this experience. I suppose I was uh, kindergarten age or maybe first grade at the time and uh, there was a circus in town and I heard that some kids, undoubtedly older kids, but I heard that some kids were, were getting hired uh, to help 
uh, feed the animals and this kind of thing. It was one of these chintzy little carnival circuses, you know, and and uh, so I I uh, said to my folks, I sure would like to go down there and get a job. And my folks said, son, now listen, that circus is is a dangerous place and uh, you know there are bad men there and uh, you never know what will happen to a little boy and you're too young and all of this and son we don't want you going anywhere near that place so I thought to myself alright so if I can't do that I can do something for mom and dad and I took a bucket and I went with a friend clear out a little ways, you know, seemed like a long ways for a little kid, but probably wasn't more than a mile or so, um, to where there were some wild blackberries growing. And we went out there, and we we got all scratched up from the the brambles, and, and we picked blackberries and filled that bucket. On our way home, we had to cross over a railroad track, and there was a guy by a little station there, and he saw those those blackberries, and he offered to buy the blackberries from us. But we weren't going to do that. No, sir. We'd pick that, pick those for my mom and dad. And well, here we come, walking up the street. And as I was walking up the street, I saw my folks' car coming down the street. And they had reasoned that I had gone to that circus against their permission. They knew that I wasn't always the most obedient child in the world. And they had reasoned that. And they came, and they were just angry, you know, in the way parents get angry because they were upset and worried and everything else. And they'd been down to that circus and they'd looked around and they were just about frantic and ready to call the police. And we had been gone, I guess, an awful long time, or at least it seemed a long time to them. And I, I never forget, here I was, you know, ready to get my head chewed off when I held up the blackberries. And all of a sudden saw my parents so chagrined because they suddenly realized, oh no, he'd been going out getting blackberries for us. Mom had said something about, I sure wish I had some blackberries for a pie or something like that. And I'd picked it up. And oh, they were so ashamed of themselves for being upset with me. And you can imagine the happy reunion that we had at that moment. And I guess the way they describe it, I had blackberries all over my face because we'd eaten a good share of them as well as the ones we'd picked. But nevertheless, they showed them a grateful spirit when they realized what they'd done. You know, many times, if you'd really think it through, you realize that things that your husband does that seem to be inconsiderate may indeed be a show of consideration. And in another way, in a way you never thought of, and your anger can be very quickly then turned to true gratefulness when you really begin to understand that. And you can express that gratefulness to your husband. And oh, I'll tell you, there's nothing like the, the joy and the drawing together that comes when a, a thoughtful act meets a grateful spirit. Tremendous impact. But you see, the text goes on. And says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves. It's not your place to avenge. Rather, give place unto wrath. That doesn't mean give room for it in your life. It means to get out of the road so it can get by, so it doesn't affect you. 
Don't let wrath affect you. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If your husband forgets your anniversary, fix him a nice meal. If he thirst, give him to drink. For in so doing thou shalt keep coals of fire upon his head. And don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Soft answer turns away wrath. You need to realize that as a yielded Christian, you must never retaliate. Number four. Recognize that ungratefulness is part of the development of a reprobate mind. I don't think that we often think of ungratefulness as being sin. But it is a part of the sin pattern. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verse 21. These now are phases of apostasy. One of the early signs of apostasy is ungratefulness. Notice, because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. But what happened? They became vain in their imaginations, empty imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened, and so on and so on and so on. Ultimately leading to a materialistic idolatry. But you see, one of the early stages of that apostasy, that reprobate mind, was that they were not thankful. It's because of that ungratefulness they began to go downhill in regard to God. And you see, when you are grateful to God, as grateful as you should be to God... It is an automatic response to be grateful to people. When you do not when you do not have a grateful spirit in regard to people, it's because of a lack of faith and trust in God. And therefore, when you start trusting God and learning how to say thank you to the Lord, then you learn how to say thank you to other individuals. And so you see, if you have an ungrateful spirit, you're already on the skids. You're already going downhill. It's a part of the attitude that ultimately leads to tremendous sin and apostasy and running from God. God sees it as, as potentially dangerous and wicked in God's sight, leading to great turning away from Him. He wants us to have a grateful spirit. So realize how wicked it is to not have that grateful spirit. Now, further, we as Christians are to yield our rights to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present, that you yield your body, living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Over in the 15th 
chapter of Romans. It says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell upon me. You know, it's, it's a tremendous thing to come to the place in your own life and experience where, where you realize that, that uh, God simply wants you to realize that you're a servant. To realize that really your body doesn't belong to you. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are Christ. Luke chapter 17. Look over there for a moment. Luke 17. Tremendous passage, and I wish I had time to develop it in detail. Obviously, I don't. But this passage is talking about the idea of forgiving. And then it goes on after that, and it talks, Christ talks about the fact that we should respond uh, doing what he wants us to do against feelings. We're not to respond according to the way we feel. We're to respond according to faith. And uh, it's not a matter of how much faith we have. The faith is there because God is planted in our heart. But uh, we are to obey whether we feel like it or not. We're, we're, we're servants and therefore we obey. And uh, the, the illustration that Christ uses is very striking, beginning in verse 7 of Luke 17. But which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him when he comes from the field, go and sit down to eat? Uh, you've worked awfully hard today, now you just kind of take it easy. Which of you would ever do that with such a servant? Well, this was in the day of slavery. That would be ridiculous. No. You will rather say unto him, verse 8, Make ready that with which I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. You've been sitting around all day. And your servant comes in from working in the field and a hard day's work and you say, okay, fix my supper and wash my feet. That's the way a master treated his servant. Right? Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. After he does all of that, you say, oh, I'm so, so thankful for all you've done. No. So ye also, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, you say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. Now what happens when you have that kind of an attitude? When you have the attitude after doing all the work and everything else that nobody owes you anything. You've given your rights. You are a servant. You're a slave. You have surrendered yourself. You don't have to have thanks. You don't have to have, you don't have, to have anybody appreciate it because you've only done what you were supposed to do. Then you see, you as a result will generate 
on the part of the other party a tremendous gratefulness. You can't help. We're dealing here with master-slave relationships, but your relationship may be only that in the home and the family. But when you have an attitude of, of not expecting any return, not expecting anything in the way of, of, of thank you or in the way of appreciation or the way of reward, when you come to that, that place in your life and experience where you realize that you've done a good job in keeping the house, you've cooked the good meals, you've cared for your husband's need, not because you felt like it, but because you've been obedient to God. When you have that attitude, then when he says thank you, you're going to be tremendously, tremendously grateful that he even went that far to say thank you. And if he does something else, takes you out to supper or something, wow, you're going to be so grateful. And he's going to sense that gratefulness. It'll give him greater motivation to do even more things. Oh, there's so much that could be said about yielding rights. It's one of the themes of the New Testament. You find it again and again. But the next one is akin to it. Give God all your expectations. Don't have any expectations. Don't expect a thank you from your husband. Yield that to God. Give it to God. Don't live from day to day expecting your husband to do things. If you have, if you have a light bulb that needs fixing and you don't expect your husband to ever fix it, then what will happen is that when you fix it, when he fixes it, even if it's two years later, finally couldn't see anymore and he decided to fix it, you know, and when he does that, oh, then you can be truly grateful, right? You say, oh my, how marvelous, how wonderful that you fixed that, instead of saying, you know, that light has been out for an awfully long time. You should have fixed it a long time ago. See what I'm saying? Psalm 62 verse 5 says, My soul wait. That's an interesting word. My soul wait. It's the word damam, which means to be dumb, to be silent. It means to wait in silent submission. My soul, wait in silent submission only upon God, for my expectation is from Him. The word expectation is a form, actually it's the word tikvah, which is a form of the word kava. If you've been around here long, you know kava. It's used in Isaiah 40, they that wait upon the Lord. Usually it's translated wait. It is one of the five Hebrew words for faith, but it's a very special word because it pictures for us the putting of a thread which could be easily broken with another thread and adding to it another thread and another 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 until it becomes a strong rope. The fibers of an ordinary rope can be broken very easily when taken individually. 
But there is a building up of fibers that makes it strong enough to pull a machine. See? Pull another car, a great towing rope, or a great hauser on a boat, something of this sort. And you see, this is what the word kava illustrates. And it is the same word in a different uh, form, tikva, which is the word expectation. There is the building up. You see what God does in one instance? Hang on to that. He adds another thing, and another, and another, and another. He's a faithful God. He never lets up. He never fails. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that call, are called according to His purpose. Now listen, what happens is there is a day-by-day -day strengthening of faith when we focus our attention upon God's faithfulness. We put tension on all of these things individually when we expect those things from people. And you never build faith and expectation in God as long as you're expecting people to do certain things. You have it, it, They're mutually exclusive. As long as you are looking to people to accomplish certain things, and focusing your attention upon people who fail, then you're, it's only going to be as strong a hope as, or strong a faith and strong a waiting as people are faithful. You'll find a few people there, but it's going to be an awfully weak rope. And you're going to find yourself sorely disillusioned. And you're going to try to put weight on that rope and it's going to break. But when you put your expectation in God, you take all of His faithfulness throughout from the beginning of the Garden of Eden right down through the present day. You put all those little pieces together and you've got a strong rope to begin with. Now all you do is in the experiences of life you continue to remember the faithfulness of God. Continue to add to the rope and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and it can never be broken. Now that is the word that's where your expectation should be. Don't ever expect anything from people. People are going to fail you. You can hope in regard to people. You can, you can be grateful when they do come through for you. But don't expect it. Expect God to come through for you. Because God is faithful. And He will do that. The Isaiah 40 of course says, They that wait... There's the word, kava. There, those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, in Psalm 39, in verse 7, it says, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? There again is kava. What do I wait for? My hope is in thee. The word hope is another word for faith. It's the word, yachal which means to wait in extreme pain. And you know the backdrop of that, if you looked at verse 6, and we won't have time to turn to it, but Psalm 39, 6 shows how the writer of the psalm had become tremendously disillusioned with people. And when he became disillusioned with people and their unfaithfulness, he said, My, my hope is in thee. Give your expectations to God. Expect Him to work. Don't expect to pour Him into your mold, though. 
But expect Him to be the one that works out His will in and through you. He will accomplish it according to His own glory. Number seven. Remember that it is always God's will. It is always God's will for you to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now you see gratefulness comes as the caboose. Gratefulness has to do more with how you feel about a matter. Giving thanks is an act of the will. Being grateful is more a matter of emotion. When you give thanks, you will develop gratefulness. What God wants you to do is, is, first of all, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. It's always His will for you to give thanks. When you give thanks, then you see, over a period of time, gratefulness becomes a part of your character. And you, be, you have then a grateful spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20 tells us that a spontaneous result of the filling of the Spirit is that you are grateful, you are thankful. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 tells us that it's a vital part of prayer. We are to pray with thanksgiving. Colossians 3.17 tells us that it's a result of dwelling in the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and then you will have a grateful spirit as the next verse indicates. Psalm 34 verse 1 tells us it should be the habit of the believer. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Hebrews 13 15 tells us that it is the fruit of our lips. The fruit of our lips. And Isaiah 57 and verse 19 tells us that I the Lord create the fruit of the lips. It should be the natural fruit of, of your lips to be giving praise and thanksgiving to God and to others. Well, another one, number eight, develop positive attitudes. Now here's a study for you that would be well worth your time. Philippians 4, 8. It tells us to concentrate your attention in a number of ways. Whatsoever things are true, the word means those things that are of true value, eternal things, things that really count. Let me ask you a question. If your husband forgets your anniversary, is it the end of the world? How much eternal significance, really, is there in the remembering of one date, the remembering of one thing, or even the remembering of a hundred, of th hundred things? How much eternal significance? You are to focus your attention and concentrate your attention upon the things that are the, the, the genuine things, the things that are of true value. Concentrate yourself upon those things and the building of your character is one of those eternal things. Whatsoever things are honest, that is, whatsoever things inspire reverence, concentrate on that. Concentrate on the things that you do see in the way of positive qualities in your husband, the things that inspire respect. Whatsoever things are just, that is in accordance with what is right, the upright things. Concentrate your attention there. Whatsoever things are pure, that means free from defilement, free from impurities. Don't allow the impurities of bitterness or wrath or anger or evil speaking to, to clutter up your mind. 
concentrate your attention upon those things that are undefiled, pure thoughts. What sort of things are lovely? That is, things that are amiable, those things that make for peace, those things that are winsome and pleasing. Whatsoever things are of good report. That means to speak well of an individual. It means that which is fair, attractive speech. That's to be characteristic of your life. Whatsoever things be of good report. When you can talk against your husband and share with your friends how he's failed you and all of that, that is not a good report. Concentrate upon the things that are of good report. If there be any virtue, that is, if there is any moral excellence, if there be any praise or any worthiness, concentrate your attention upon these things. Now, those are eight things that are very, very important. Each one of them, you could spend a long time in studying it. There's a lot of illustrations in Scripture about each of these. But God wants you to come to the place in your life where you have a truly grateful spirit. But God has a hard time sometimes teaching people that. That's why I want to turn you just as we close to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And I want to share with you just quickly and briefly a tremendous victory that was won as a result of a grateful spirit. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The people of Israel had become an ungrateful people. They had forgotten what it was to pray, and they had forgotten what it was to praise God. And they were invaded in the beginning of chapter 20 by Moab, who was the descendant of Lot by incest, Ammon, who was the descendant of Lot's son, younger son, and Edom, who were Esau's descendants, all of them a type and a picture of that which mitigates against God. And you see the peril because these three nations have come upon the people. So verses 1 and 2 give us the peril. But in verse 3 we see a prayer. And the, the sequence is so precise. Jehoshaphat feared. That is, he feared the enemy, the circumstances pressing in upon him. And he set himself to seek the Lord, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. And uh, the prayer goes on and honors God. And, and it says in verse 12 very humbly, For, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And Judah stood before the Lord in their little ones and their wives and their children. Time of desperate crisis. Tremendous unity in seeking the Lord. And then they are given a promise. The promise in essence is in verse 15, the latter part, for the battle is not yours but God's. Go out against them. Verse 17, then ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Well, what happened? In verse 18, it says, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. 
Levites, the children of Korahites, and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Now, they're still being attacked. Around them are the enemy forces. But they have the promise of God, and that's good enough. The promise of God is like money in the bank. When you have the promise of God, you can start at that point praising God because you know He's going to come through for you. He promised. He's immutable. He changes not. He will come through. You can count on it. The timing may not be exactly what we want. The circumstance may be allowed to come longer than we wish simply because God has a work that He wants to do in us so then He can do a work through us. He molds us from within and then uses us from without. He brings us to that place of humble submission and recognition of His power and authority through the circumstances that press in upon us when we set ourselves to seek the Lord and we begin to claim His promises and then lift our voice in grateful praise. Tremendous things begin to happen. It says in verse 20, They rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and be inhabitants of, of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. Oh, what a tremendous message that is. And when he had consulted with the people, telling them to believe God, he appointed singers unto the Lord who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, before the army, to say, Praise the Lord, for His mercy endureth forever. You have the peril. You have the prayer. You have the praise. And then, the, excuse me, you have the peril, you have the prayer, the promise, and then you have the praise, and then, you have the power. Look at verse 22. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set an ambush against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. What? Here the, they came out as a united army against the nation of Israel and they got all mixed up and started fighting each other. And they slew and destroyed them. When they made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. First of all, you had Ammon and Moab and they turned against Mount Seir. And when they wiped them out, then they began to fight among themselves and they killed, them, killed themselves off. Have you ever heard of such a thing in all your life? The power of God. But the aftermath of this is very important as well. Because it says that they turned and saw what God had done. And they assembled themselves in the valley of Berakah. Blessing. Blessing. And they blessed the Lord. You realize, my friend, that God wants, more than anything else, to show tremendous blessing and victory in your life. 
But God blesses a grateful spirit, a truly grateful spirit. And when you are able to thank Him for the things that other people would complain about, when you have before God a tremendously grateful spirit, the, actually the overflow of that will be then to have a grateful spirit toward people. Your problem of being ungrateful is not primarily a problem of being ungrateful for your husband or for what he doesn't do, for the things that he does do but doesn't do them on your time schedule. That's not really a problem between you and your husband. That's a problem between you and God. It is not until you come to the place where you have a deep appreciation for the building of character that God is doing in your life, a deep appreciation for what the circumstances He brings to cause you to rely upon Him. When you become grateful to Him for what He is doing, then the automatic response is by the same faith to become grateful for others round about you. I hear people sometimes say, I just wish that God would give me what I deserve. Don't ever say that. Because you deserve hell. That's what you deserve. You deserve the judgment of God. It's of His mercies that we are not consumed. It's the mercy of the Lord that endures forever. You do not deserve anything good you deserve only the worst. Therefore, anything good that comes your way should make you so grateful. You say, well, don't I deserve, don't I have the right to have a husband that loves me and is considerate? No, you don't. The best you can deserve is hell. Destruction, judgment, the wrath of God. That's the best you can deserve. My friend, God gives us so much more, doesn't he? He sends the rain and he sends the sunshine. He gives us food to eat. Gives us a roof over our head. He takes care of our needs. He does some marvelous things. But oh, how grateful we should be. Don't ever lose focus of that. But can you see that what happens in regard to God is shown in a smaller way in regard to others. When you, don't, when you think you deserve consideration on the part of your husband. When you think that's your right, then when he's considerate, that'll only be par for the course. He's only doing average. He's only doing what he should do. But when you realize that you really don't deserve anything, it's only a great only the grace of God has given you anything at all, then you will have a grateful spirit. A grateful spirit will give a husband further motivation. And you're going to find that he will respond much quicker to a grateful spirit than he will when you try to berate him and cut him down for mistakes that he's made. Try it. You'll like it. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, we do thank you for the things you're teaching us from your precious word. Thank you for the husbands you have given to us. Help us, Lord, to see their motivation in all the things they do for us. We just thank you for each one and pray for each husband represented here today, Father, as he's on the job and working hard. And we pray that you would give each a special blessing. Thank you now for this time together in your word and bring us back again next week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.